Welcome to the forum at Holy Communion. My name is Mike. I am one of the priests. Uh, and today I am joined by Dr. Rachel Penchikowski. Uh, and we are talking about ecology and creation and disease. And I'm gonna let you introduce yourself a little bit, um, Rachel. And But by way of that, I wanna ask you a question about we have asked you to join the, and you graciously agreed to join our pandemic task force after I had had a couple conversations with you early in COVID about disease. And I don't think I knew exactly what your title was, but you studied disease ecology. And what does that mean? And how are diseases related to ecology? This is a great question. So ecology in the broadest sense is just the branch of biology studying how organisms interact with each other and interact with their environments. And so disease ecology is just the study of how diseases uh, interact with other organisms, including host organisms and other um, disease causing agents. Um, I and many disease ecologists think about infectious diseases, um, including you know, very diverse types of organisms from viruses, bacteria, fungi, all the way to um, parasitic worms. Usually different people specialize on different types of disease causing organisms, but um, many of the processes can be um, studied and compared between different disease systems, which is always interesting. And so, yeah. yeah. No, I was gonna say that's been really interesting because you specialize kind of in plants, yeah? Mm-hmm, so, um, Many disease ecologists also work in what we call model systems. And so these are uh, systems you might have heard of model systems like fruit flies for um, many types of uh, molecular and genetic uh, studies. Um, mouse model systems are also widely used in biology. And in disease ecology, you know, a model system could be whatever is um, a species or a pair of species being at least one host and one um, pathogen or parasite that can be really useful for answering questions about ecology and or evolution of disease in different contexts. And so different model systems might be appropriate to different types of diseases, but typically you wanna work with a system that's going to be tractable for the questions involved and ideally also um, you know, ethical Right, mm -hmm. so um, there's a reason why people use mouse models over primate models of human diseases. And so in my lab, we primarily work with plants as our model host organisms. And especially we work with really common weedy plants that like all free living organisms get infected with things. Um, and one of the things that our favorite common weedy plants um, get infected with is a fungus. It's a powdery mildew fungus. And we use this system as a model in part because it's really common and really abundant, really easy to find. And this infection you can see reliably on the outside of the leaf. You don't even have to um, dissect anything or necessarily do any um, lab-based molecular um, analyses to tell if something is infected or not. And there's really nice um, obvious symptoms and then we can work with it quite easily in the greenhouse and the lab and we can study um, how the disease transmits, when and we can ask questions about when and where hosts of the same species are um, infected and where they're, when and where they're not. Um, we can look at how strains of this pathogen 
evolve to adapt to hosts in a given place or adapt to say the climate in a given place. Um, and then we can also expand out. And I think some of the really interesting disease ecology maybe starts with a, a given focal host and pathogen and then that transmission to other host species or looks at how co-infection with multiple pathogens at the same time matters or how the microbiome associated with the host impacts the probability of disease or looks at how predation on the, on the host um, you know, either enhances or decreases uh, the, the transmission of disease through the population. Yeah, it's interesting. I, as we, we've been talking about the pandemic for 18 months now, and I, I think if we had had this conversation early on, um, all sorts of topics of knowledge that I've now read multiple not peer reviewed, but like news articles about um, what you just said in terms of, you know, mutation and in terms of how um, diseases interact with our hosts. Like just as a society, we've had to learn a lot more about these things um, in recent days. Uh, and you've been thinking about them for a long time. I, we'll come back around to pandemic and those questions, but I want to start a little bit. So we're doing three weeks at Holy Communion of what is a longer season in the church that is one of the newer seasons. Um, it came from the World Council of Churches and it looks at creation, but it was particularly started by the ecumenical patriarch, the head of the Orthodox Church, to raise awareness about climate change um, and human-driven climate change. So what are some um, signs in the world of disease around human-driven climate change? Like, how does that interact with the work that you do? Yeah, so I would say from the human-centered perspective that many of us are, are deeply concerned about, um, some of the most well-documented changes um, have to do with changes in the geographic distribution of vectors of disease. Hmm. So things like mosquitoes and ticks um, that are found in places where they didn't used to be able to live because of climate conditions changing. And so then the question is, hmm, now that this vector is here, does the pathogen that sometimes hitches a ride with this, with this vector, can it also persist in this new place? And is this going to pose a, a risk to human populations? Um, and so we're definitely seeing shifts in, in vector distributions. And um, um, I also think about in my own work with plants and pathogens, how climate is changing the length of the growing season. Um, well, the, the amount of sunlight is staying the same, but the climatic conditions appropriate for growth of the, of the plant and the pathogen are, are shifting. And so um, kind of one of the understudied parts of the year in terms of climate change is winter. And mm -hmm. in places with historically cold winters, um, there's a whole lot we don't know about what pathogens um, do to survive the winter and how a lack of winter with climate change or a change in winter conditions, whether that means um, just wetter but not as much snow or mm. um, you know, just simply warmer overall, how those changes are impacting the full life cycle of, of pathogens and parasites yeah, in the or in their hosts. Missourians, when it's a particularly cold winter with a lot of freezes, like to tell themselves there will be less mosquitoes the following summer kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, and then, oh yeah, another really important facet yeah. of climate change though, is that, you know, we know that excessive heat and drought, these 
types of, of, of temperature and, and water related things can really affect the overall stress, um, mm. physiological stress of an organism and um, may make some host organisms just more vulnerable to mm. disease. So there've been some well-documented die-offs of you know, coral in, in the Caribbean um, linked to um, excessive heat you know, coupled with um, pathogens. Sometimes the pathogen is not completely figured out yet, but this mm. pairing of stress from climate change, uh, physiological stress, plus disease can be especially troublesome. And, and we're even seeing that, of course, as humans in this COVID pandemic, um, how problematic it is when we have an infectious disease coupled with whether it's um, a hurricane or an excessive cold snap in a place that doesn't normally have such cold or excessive heat. Um, this, this impacts our, um, our behaviors in ways that may not align with what we need to do to keep ourselves safe from, from infection. Let alone, you know, ongoing systemic inequalities that, I mean, <laughs> that we've seen across that, that people who generally have better health indicators tend to do better in a pandemic. Um, and that and they also pandemic. do better under, under uh, weather related disasters. Yeah. Exacerbated by climate change. Yeah. So um, I quoted the Archbishop of Canterbury Pope and ecumenical patriarch around that in my sermon. One thing that I Put myself out there on and i i'm sort of partly checking but from a theological perspective this is important this idea that the earth it, like the anthropocene is not something that the bible contemplates so this is a new thing for us ethically this idea that human beings are affecting the whole climate but one of the things that i said on sunday was that the earth is surprisingly resilient um and it made me nervous saying that with a bunch of bio and ecology PhDs in the congregation, but I'm, I'm sort of checking my work afterwards. But what would you say about resiliency? I meant it theologically, but from biology, how do we talk about resiliency? Yeah, this is a, a really big and important topic. I would say that in many ways, the earth is surprisingly resilient and ecosystems can be quite resilient where a small um, shock to the system kind of fades out rapidly. Maybe there's a, a brief kind of what we would say perturbation to the system, but maybe there's kind of small compensations in the dynamics of certain other organisms um, or processes. But there are limits to this. And as we know, um, with problems like you know mass extinctions um, and um, you know tipping points in eutrophication of of lakes where you can you know pump loads of phosphorus as runoff from agriculture into a given lake um, for years and years, but still have more or less the same lake that you always knew in terms of um, clear water, that the algae is getting gobbled up by these creatures who are getting gobbled up by these who are getting gobbled up by these and rooted plants anchoring the sediment. But there can be in some systems tipping points where now you've pushed just enough nutrients into the system um, that those um, dynamics no longer are able to um, buffer the change and you can have a, a very different um, ecosystem um, after that. Yeah. So that would be yeah. one, one example, right? And we, we know about feudal coral reefs that are now like coated in, in macroalgae um, yeah. or, or soil that is um, just completely changed in its structure and nutrient composition and 
microbial composition from intensive farming practices. And, and that's some of what that big, scary UN report this summer was contemplating, right? Is that, um, and it, it maybe was thinking about human um, activity and water movement and things more directly than biology, but that there are sort of centigrade degree tipping points out there that that's why that it's still worthwhile, even though we're already where we are, that trying to move for particular goals matters because of system failures, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's really hard for human beings to have that really big picture context and we're used to and in many cases you know folks are um, really have to think moment to moment day by day just to get through this thing called life and yeah. so we kind of carry on the way we always have as societies and so it's hard to imagine how you know well everything is maybe things are changing very slowly but things will just continue changing super gradually and it won't matter but there yeah. are these tipping points that we need to be wary of. Well, and, and we sort of are, I don't know, I mean, emotionally, I mean, like we, we talk about biological and scientific tipping points. I think for a number of folks, this summer was in a way a, a tipping point, at least in terms of the way attention culturally, um, attention was given to and the way that fires were changing the living conditions. Um, and it it's, it, we've hit a point where that old postal service song about, we think about climate change is just, being rewarded for good behavior and now we can swim every day in December that that we've shifted from that kind of mentality of the early aughts where climate change was this kind of joke culturally to um, like a significant and we're actually thinking about what it's going to cost um, to continue doing life this way. All right so coming back to our current pandemic um, is there a potential relationship between this pandemic, potential other pandemics and climate change and, and ecology? Like, is there, I, I've heard about, you know, like you know, there's all sorts of political debate over the, where did the pandemic come from this time? But how does that, how does the current pandemic play ecologically? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think there's pretty widespread agreement that, you know, the this SARS-CoV-2 virus came from, through a natural path, pathway by which a wildlife host encountered a human and, and infected it at least once, or at least <laughs> in at least one case this happened. Um, and it will probably take some time before that's fully resolved. But what we do know is that you know, human alteration of, of landscapes um, alters patterns of wildlife movement and wildlife resource use. And as that kind of human wildlife interface changes that alters the probability that these types of spillover events um, can occur. Um, we also know that human um, movement patterns for uh, trade and other reasons um, make it very likely that um, diseases can then move around the world. And I would say that um, none of that was surprising, right? Like people have predicted spillover of potentially devastating viruses uh, into the human population. It's happened before. Uh, we've known this was happening. I think what is surprising is just how terribly um, most uh, nations on earth uh, responded mm. in terms of not doing the most, <laughs> most um, common sense and effective strategies um, 
to, to mitigate the, the spread of disease and really folks not wanting to um, have even a momentary change of, of, of plans um, not to be in, to be not inconvenienced by things like um, staying home or, or wearing masks when it could have really mattered a whole lot. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So I think that, you know, so human alteration of, of landscapes, but also I think the something that has also been really uh, laid bare in this in this pandemic is how our healthcare infrastructure is so um, lacking in integration and ability to um, meet the needs of people. And so I think really nothing about this pandemic or about the, you know, one thing that also any disease ecologist could have told you is that with enough cases circulating in the human population, you're going to get evolution of more infectious strains or, or variants. And so this Delta variant is absolutely not at all surprising. Um, and you know, if we keep up enough virus in the population, there will be new variants that also are slightly better at transmitting from host to host. Um, so again, I think the most of the things that have um, played out during this pandemic from a kind of modeling perspective have been really unsurprising, but what is surprising is um, kind of the, the human element um, and the lack of, of cooperation within and between uh, groups of people. Yeah, no, there's a, a one of the kind of public health people that I've been following for a long time because he dabbles in theology is Paul Farmer. Uh, and he was part of a big uh, press release this summer looking at the need for um, the US and other, uh, you know, like wealthy nations to prioritize billions of dollars into vaccine um, not just development, but vaccine distribution uh, around the world. And that it, you know, like that we have to actually say that um, is sort of, you know, and that people have to fight for that is sort of stunning. Yeah, like there's this, have you ever played the board game pandemic? Yeah. <laughs> so it was, the idea is it was this cooperative game where everyone is trying to squash the pandemic. And I, I feel that that's like now a very vintage, um, an anachronistic um, game because one, it's not a game, but also two, apparently the world is not playing it as a cooperative game. There's a lot of resource hoarding and lack of responsibility taking. Yeah, there's, the way you win that game is generally by building more uh, study and vaccination creation centers in various countries so that you can hop to them and, and fix things. Yeah, no, that's, it's, yeah, it's difficult. That, I mean, like, and to think about that as an ecological failure, like we are failing failing to cooperate, um, is an interesting thing to do. If if you were going to prioritize, I mean, pandemic, we've talked a little bit, but uh, changes we could be making in terms of our response to ecology. There's just so many out there, and like you know, but but what? How would you prioritize them? Well. I guess one thing I really like about my job as a basic scientist is that mm -hmm. it's not my job to prioritize them. <laughs> the whole yeah. other field or multiple fields. Um, so, you know, I would say you know, 
lack of reliance or lessening our reliance on, on fossil fuels is really has been the big one for a very long time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I think, but I think also making sure that the entities who are doing the most damage to our earth are the ones that are, are focused on. Um, so of course we know that big corporations um, and entire industries do the bulk of the damage in terms of um, modification of landscape, use of water and um, consumption and use of, of fossil fuels with resulting emissions. And so um, yes, every, you know, every human has some role to play in this um, but it's not as simple as, you know, just individual households taking yeah. the recycling or, or biking to work. It's a much bigger problem. Yeah, no, it's, it's not just, and that's part of the, it's part of the, it's the preview for Sunday in terms of my preaching, but the decisions we make corporately, um, at the governmental and at the, and the level of our consumption and the level of our workplace tend to matter a lot more than, you know, our little carbon footprint and, uh, whether we're personally, you know, I bike to work today, but that's less of a, we're not that we could all bike to work and it wouldn't solve the problem. Um, what about let's, let's turn, I mean, like it's, it's easy in these ecology places to get kind of doomy gloomy. Um, so I wanted to ask you a question that I know that not many people know that, but, uh, the other day, my, uh, almost three-year-old Silas, uh, dug up or like rediscovered and pulled out of the ground and I put it back the sensor that you'd put in our yard. But you've also got a couple of sensors at church. Can you tell us about the sensors that you're spreading around? Sure. So I've joined um, a large um, a global network called Soil Temp. And it's a network of people who are all interested in microclimate. So climate at a very small scale. Um, and in this network specifically um, in the soil, just below the soil surface. And so um, there's a group in Europe who's um, spearheaded this, this effort and then folks um, in several con continents of the world, um, at least multiple continent continents of the world. And we have, my lab has about a hundred of these little temperature data loggers um, paired in kind of sunny and shadier spots uh, within a few dozen uh, locations in the St. Louis region. And so we're looking specifically across an urbanization gradient. So from downtown all the way out um, to Eureka where the Tyson, uh, the Washu Tyson Research Center is and then to Shaw Nature Reserve. Um, some are in parks where we have permission, others are in um, private land. Um, but the idea is just to really get that fine scale temperature measurement under the soil and see how it maps onto uh, coarser, like remotely sensed uh, temperature measurements for the same place. Because we know that you know, temperature vary, can vary a lot over very small scales due to things like the, well, the composition of the soil, the, the amount of, of shade, uh, distance to roads, et cetera. And so um, my lab is studying plant pathogen and plant herbivore interactions along the same urbanization gradient locally. And so it was um, kind of also uh, aligned with our interests to get some good uh, high resolution temperature data at those sites. Yeah. And during the pandemic, I know that uh, you've had uh, Ziggy and Alana out uh, like looking at um, moldy uh, leaf fun or like leaf mold and things. Right. So can you talk a little bit? I, 
Okay, and there were pictures of your kids were doing stuff with slime and bathtubs in your backyard or something too. Can you talk a little so, bit about that? <laughs> we took work from home very literally around here. Um, so some, you know, the one thing that's nice about the um, ubiquity of our study system is that I can literally collect samples um, just right in front of our house um, in all the parks that we visit as a family and my kids' school. Um, I'm that kind of weird lady who's crouched down and grabbing specimens <laughs> wherever we go. Um, and, and the kids are really, both really good at identifying the focal species involved and they'll bring me samples um, when they go places. And so we've done a lot of um, sample collection, usually with them both um, really just asking when, when can we get to the playground, please. Nice. Um, but then we, I had a graduate student who um, did a we took greenhouse grown potted plants um, of some known genotypes that we'd grown in the greenhouse and she distributed them to parks along our urbanization gradient and let um, herbivores and pathogens do with those plants what they would for one week and then she brought them all back uh, to my driveway to uh, record data and so we ordinarily would have had her bring her plants um, you know somewhere on WashU campus or at Tyson Research Center but there were a number of number of logistical hurdles regarding um, transportation and just access to, to sites um, last summer. And the, the best solution we could think of was for her to um, bring things to my driveway and we could kind of take turns monitoring the situation from there. And then in the end, I made my kids um, just, no, I didn't made, I offered them the opportunity to help by um, dumping all the old plants into big um, swimming pools for disposal. That's awesome. So swimming pools, that's cool. So one of the things that I, the hymn, there's a hymn that talks about um, getting lost in wonder and awe. Um, and I tend, when I tend to think eco ecologically, my brain pretty quickly gets to the point where I'm just like, this is so big, I can't comprehend it. So I wanted to ask like, is there a system out there that for you is still so big uh, that when you teach it or when you, try to like think or theorize around it, it just gets so big that you're just like either in awe or it's hard to comprehend or, uh, you know, fun to teach. I would say there's, there's many things I could choose here. Um, I think some of my favorite parts of thinking about diseases is actually kind of getting to the small and the complicated. And so, mm. you know, there's um, some old poem about how, I'm not gonna try to quote it, but the idea being that everything has parasites, even parasites have parasites. Um, and so I think hyperparasitism is a really mind-blowing um, topic. So parasites of parasites. Um, we have some hyperparasites that grow on our powdery mildew infected leaves. And to us, it's at this point, mostly a nuisance. Um, we're trying to grow powdery mildew in experiments and sometimes they're contaminated with other fungi that are killing the powdery mildew. Um, but I think one of the truly wildest examples that I've personally worked with thus far was during postdoctoral research before coming to WashU. I was at UW-Madison um, working with um, a researcher named Tony Ives in a P-aphid um, system in alfalfa fields. And these P-aphids um, get parasitized by parasitic wasps that are specific to P-aphids that lay their um, eggs in, in, the, in the aphids. But then aphids, um, P aphids harbor bacterial 
endosymbionts, the little symbiotic bacteria. Um, some of those endosymbionts have a virus that produces a toxin that kills the parasitic wasp eggs as they're developing. And so there are these protective bacteria because they have a, a virus uh, along for the ride. And then I was specifically interested in how having these protective endosymbionts changed aphid behavior in response to wasp attacks and whether in impact the transmission of plant viruses between plants as aphids did or did not get sort of startled by wasps and did or did not move between plants. So it was like a virus of a bacterium and an aphid potentially altering the rate of virus transmission between plants. It didn't get very far in that project, but it, it was fun to think about how complicated I could possibly make it. It's like the woman who swallowed the fly song that it just keeps going and going and going. It's like Russian dolls. Wow. Yeah. I didn't think you were going to go to parasites on parasites, but that's a fascinating kind of place. So we're going to wrap up. Um, I would invite, uh, we've been doing discussions at nine o'clock in the morning between the services out on the front lawn. Anybody who wants to come talk ecology, we'd love to have you on Sunday, the 26th uh, to yeah, do that. Yeah, but it's it's a um, it's a really fascinating thing. I mean, you start opening up ecology, you start opening up the relationship we have in na with nature, and it's pretty quick that you run into questions of ethics or questions of faith, um, because it has to do with well, what ought to be or what could be. What are the possibilities here? Um, so it's it's a part of uh, science that I find really really fascinating. And it is, I've been incredibly grateful. I know that we've, early on in the pandemic, we had a bunch of MDs that were going, learning a lot about, you know, the time exposure and things like that matter for disease. And that's not something that they normally think about. Um, and now these days, for the most part, the people who are plant people are going, well, we're going to let the human people, um, the MDs do a lot of the decision making. But it has been an unexpected um, blessing of the pandemic to get to interact with you and and pick your brain. Um, and I'm just incredibly grateful for getting to know you and getting to have this conversation, but also the ongoing work you've been doing with the church um, as we've been trying to keep everybody safe. So thank you. Uh, we look forward to talking some more and uh, we hope to see some folks on Sunday. Sounds good. All right.